Hi, it's Nick Brown here with Rachel Agbeko to run through the February Atoms pieces. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Nick. Well, interesting selection of papers, but I, I would say that, I guess, wouldn't I? But um, I think these are particularly thought-provoking. So, each to their own, or a chacun sans goût, as they say in France, this, this edition of Archives, again, gives us ample opportunity to challenge our stroke traditional thinking. There are several papers that speak to our behaviour during environmental challenges, and we'll be highlighting some of these in the discussion. Today, we'll focus on four papers with quite different scientific flavours, two systematic reviews, an editorial, and a quasi-experimental study. Was there a chord struck with you, Rachel, in the same way that was there was for me? Yeah, I think so, so Nick. Um, and I think they can all tell us something about um, our behaviour and, um, and biases. As, uh, as you say, to each their own, may, may say something about our biases and, and beliefs. And I think you wrote in Atoms this, uh, this month, do we attribute current states of being to genetics, uh, epigenetics, the environment? Uh, and, and then I started to wonder about our focus on determinism, as we mostly do, but we probably need to think about whether we've also got room for free will and then the associated moral responsibility. Interesting thought. Well, the the, the pandemic, the SARS, the COVID pandemic, can certainly be classed as an environmental contribution to our behavioural phenotype, if you like. Why don't we start with a, a COVID-related paper? And I'd like to look at uh, a paper, a systematic view on the influence of epidemics and pandemics in general on paediatric ED use. So this was a systematic review by Damien Rowland in, at Leicester Royal Infirmary and colleagues from across Europe. In short, this is a systematic review and narrative analysis of the literature on paediatric emergency department attendance, so num numbers turning up during pandemics and epidemics. Well, first, I'd, I'd like to start, and, and that's something that the authors noticed um, as well and noted uh, as well, is that um, of the 131 papers uh, that were included in the review, they're mostly from higher or middle-income countries. And then again, mostly from the US, Italy and UK. And about 80%, so the vast majority, pertain to the current SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. So I think we need to keep that in mind when thinking about the paper. And it did prompt some questions. So maybe how do we understand the reduction in emergency department uh, attendance during this pandemic? Um, do we know what moved people to decide to change behaviour? Uh, there are some um, thoughts that it might have been fear, uh, as one can imagine, contracting the virus. There might be a consideration about breaching lockdown instructions. Is the threshold different in different cases? But uh, it may also be a reflection how we've organised paediatric emergency departments and, and whether it might be a portal uh, to healthcare. But we don't actually know these things. No, and what's interesting, attendance through each of these pandemics wasn't universally reduced in the papers that were reviewed. So they examined several. The 2009 H1 influenza pandemic showed a different picture 
and so did the 1993 E. coli O157 hemorrhagic colitis and hemolytic uremic syndrome outbreak in Washington in the US. So these differences then bring on the question is how do their parents risk assess whether it's more dangerous to stay at home or to attend ED? So the fear of contracting something versus the concern about something serious going on with their, uh, with their child. Um, and, and also how can messaging influence the behaviour? So uh, if there's a narrative out there that it's dangerous to go to ED, then uh, parents may um, decide differently. Uh, and I wondered, especially with the E. coli, one that's a very circumscribed entity uh, that looks at uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, and people may have been less concerned about contracting it uh, while going to ED, whilst being more concerned uh, about their child uh, having a serious illness. And then the other thing I wondered why do we have this huge output of papers around COVID in comparison to the other outbreaks? And and just to refresh our memory, or if maybe even introduce us to the different uh, outbreaks, there was the 1999 to 2000 influenza outbreak in Israel, SARS in 2003, Ebola 2014 in Sierra Leone, uh, and chikungunya fever in Jamaica in 2014. 2015 gave us MERS. There's several outbreaks that have been reported in the literature, but there is an inordinate number of papers in this context, attendance to paediatric emergency department, that focuses on um, the current pandemic. So what does that tell us about our studying and publishing behaviour? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I don't think there's any way around from the elephant in the room that is publication bias, perhaps. Another factor I would assume influenced this, I've no way of proving that, is that this was more of a global issue. Looking at the the time span over which these were spread, I wonder also whether greater access to social media played a role at some level. I can't explain exactly where. But I wonder whether dissemination and the rapidity of dissemination of nuggets somehow influenced publication practice. I don't know, but it's it's mm. it's uh, all very thought provoking. Indeed. So let's stay with COVID for a for a bit longer. Mm. There's two papers on uh, wearing masks. One is a paper called Unraveling the Role of the Mandatory Use of the Face-Covering Masks for the Control of SARS-CoV-2 in Schools, a quasi-experimental study nested in a population-based cohort in Catalonia, Spain, by Ermengol Coma at the Catalan Institute for Health in Spain and their colleagues. And the accompanying editorial by Alastair Munro in Southampton, Robert Hughes in London. Well, the Catalonian paper is really interesting. And the authors have taken, um, have really grasped the opportunity to describe the effects of an intervention um, as part of a natural experiment. The, the implementation of mandatory mask wearing at a school cutoff age. And the question they tried to answer with a study we've got, which is about as near to a natural RCT as one can come. The, the question was, do masks work in preventing um, COVID transmission in children? So in a nutshell, in, in Catalonia during the first trimester of 
20 to 21 academic preschool year children, so three to five year olds, were not mandated to wear a mask. Um, and primary age children, so six to 11 years, were. During this time, the Delta variant was the prevalent strain. The take-up of teachers being vaccinated was more than 90% of the time, so less statistical noise, if you like, there. And the study is amazing that the whole cohort comprised of 600,000 children between 3 and 11 years old in just over 1,900 schools and 28,000 or so bubble groups. There was a lot that appealed about this piece. I really enjoyed reading it. The clarity, the methods were as robust as could be in this type of situation. And the authors tried to get groups that were as comparable as possible, not just in terms of the intervention per se, but also in how the schools had organised themselves. As we know, age plays a role in infectious illness with differing immune responses. So it's important not to compare adolescents with very young children, for instance. Here, the population is clearly defined as children. So 5 to 11. Very neat. What I really thought about and, and admired was that um, the authors really saw the opportunity to try to underpin policy interventions with, uh, with data, uh, which may be used for future uh, outbreaks. But not only that, they actually did the study. And I love this abutting of pragmatism and, and, uh, and rigour. Alistair Munro and Robert Hughes, then in their uh, accompanying editorial, they, they rightly remind us of um, the importance of bias in our study. So we come back to bias again, as well as the unintended consequences of, of intervention. So important to keep an open mind. So you've got your intended consequences and then what might be unintended consequences. And, uh, and especially when uh, the issue at hand is contentious, as we've noticed that mask wearing uh, was in certain parts of uh, of the world, um, and definitely in the pretty much near absence of interventional real world trials, it's it's important to maintain that awareness of uh, of bias and taking the opportunity. So where there is that to uh, to grasp it, I love that about this paper. I think really well done to the authors. Now, finally. Um, we come to a paper by Maria Neuclusus and colleagues in Liverpool uh, who present their findings and the conclusions um, on training packages for the use of child development tools in low and middle income countries. And I think this paper, Nick, gives us pause. It really does. The good news is that with the transition from the Millennium Development Goals, which ran between 2000 and 2015 to the more recent sustainable development goals, the SDGs, the WHO seemed to have implicitly moved from the very basic childhood outcome, survival plus minus, to a more sophisticated one of fulfilment of potential, which after all is the underpinning definition of health in any case. So with this change then comes the need to measure what fulfilment of potential might look like and where it might fall short. Child development is perhaps, arguably, the example par excellence. And there are tools to measure child development in low and middle income countries. But whoever administers them, whoever uses them, needs to be able to use them appropriately. And this is where training packages come in. For a good package, of course, it needs to be accessible, it needs to be reasonably easy to learn, it needs to 
engender robust inter and intra-observer variability or keeping that as narrow as possible. And importantly, it needs to be affordable by those who will be using it most. These training packages are available and the authors identified 24 of which uh, 18 could be analysed on the basis of their a priori uh, hypothesis, which was, was there sufficient training information? I have to point out that not all training packages were freely available. The costs were quite varied. Not all were easily accessible. And none, none met the recommendations of a training package as outlined in the paper. I think the authors have given us um, the data to see how translation of attainment of fulfilment leads to measurement tools and then can we actually use them? So they're available, but are they really available? And I think that's the, that's the question. And that may be more so in theory uh, than in, in practice. For now, we leave things tantalisingly with the moral responsibility issue and uh, revisit again soon. So thank you so much, Rachel. As always, a, a, a great discussion. Um, I hope everyone who's listening enjoys this too. Of course, there's a lot more on the journal site on adc.bmje.com. For those who don't know, we publish regular podcasts about some of the best current um, issue material in, in archives. If you don't want to miss it, subscribe on your preferred platform, which includes Apple and Spotify. We'd also like to hear from you, so please get in touch through our social media channels or leave us a review on the ADC podcast page on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Have a good month. See you next time. Bye for now.